the, the gentleman here, William Federer, I, uh, I heard him speak several years ago. I went to a meeting in Assembly of God Church on the east side of town where, where General Boykin was and, and General Flynn, and they were talking about the upcoming elections. And I've always been sort of a history buff. When I was in high school, I would read whole history books for fun. That, that was my reading. I wanted to know everything about history. And let me tell you what's happening in America now. What we need in America is enough. We need, we need truth. We need truth. You need to learn what's going on. You need to learn what's going on behind the scenes and what's happening really in America and the world. And you're not going to get it from ABC, NBC, and you're not going to get it from them. And you have to go looking for it. Well, I figured since you're not looking, I'm going to bring them in. So after I met William, or I, I went up and introduced myself, I bought some of his books on miracles in America, and I've preached his sermons. Y'all didn't know where I stole it. And, um, but, but, you know, just, just learning, learning what actually happened in America and what's happening in America today has really educated me. And I want to start a, a movement in Apopka um, of ministers. I want ministers to become educated. I want people to become educated. I realize that when you've been taught wrong so long, it's very difficult when someone comes along and goes, that really wasn't the way it was. And so you need, you need to be able to have resources to where you can actually study and, and learn. Well, he has a, um, uh, I don't know what you call it, it goes on your phone called American Minute. And, and it comes to my phone every day. And I read it, I read it. And it's all about uh, what happened in, in, in church history, what happens in American history. And he's, and I don't know how to say it, he's a, he's a nationally no, uh, known speaker and author. And um, after I met him, I realized history-wise, I'm in kindergarten. <laughs> so anyway, let's stand, let's, let's welcome William here to the, to, the, to the platform and let's turn him loose. You may want to. Amen. Well, thank you, Pastor. And join me in thanking the Lord for your pastor, Daryl and Lisa Morgan. And I'm so impressed at the leadership that they have gathered with Pastor Justin. And I got to sit in a little bit on uh, Pastor Megan Tucker's Sunday school class. And I was very, very blessed. So you're, you're blessed right here at Word of Life. God bless you. Please sit down. Well, I, um, and thank you for the praise and worship. Uh, that was so beautiful. Well, I, uh, the book of Acts is history. It's the early church history. And so just think of this as continuing the book of Acts and seeing how what happened to Christians in other centuries. And so um, uh, I have a, a website, AmericanMinute.com, as Pastor mentioned. Um, so one of the things I decided to do was to zoom out and look at the big picture. My son and I, um, M Michael, he's working the book table there, but we uh, drive and we talk about zooming out and looking at history. And so uh, I decided I would research every single century of recorded human history. It's like the ultimate zoom out and ask the question, what's the most common form of government? And you go back and writing was invented around 3300 B.C. Uh, and so uh, uh, there's, my, my son actually found a, an episode of Neil deGrasse Tyson, an astrophysicist, in his Cosmos TV series. And he's standing in the desert. 
And he says, it was here between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers 5,000 years ago that we learned how to write. So here's a secular astrophysicist saying writing was invented around 5,000 years ago. We're around 2080. That would be around 3,000 or so BC. And so you have records written. And so let's look at the records. What do they show? Well, Nimrod, Tower of Babel. And then you got Gilgamesh, king of Uruk, around 2500 BC. And then Sargon of Akkadia, around 2250 BC. And then you got 2,000 years of Egyptian pharaohs and 5,000 years of Chinese emperors. And 700 BC, you got the king of Assyria. He's the one who took Israel, the 10 northern tribes, captive. And then you have um, uh, Babylon conquers Assyria. And then Babylon's conquered by um, uh, Darius and then Cyrus. And he's got the biggest empire in the world. And he uh, lets the Jews go back and rebuild the temple. But then Persia's conquered by by Alexander the Great. He's got the biggest empire around 330 BC. And then he stopped from going into India and you got Chandra Gupta. He's got the biggest empire of the Mara Empire. And then 25 BC, you got Augustus Caesar. He's got the biggest empire. Matter of fact, he wanted to have a worldwide tracking system. It was called the census. That was like new technology. If he could have 5G and cell phones and cameras and satellites, he would have been tempted to track people that way. And, and with centuries go on, there's military advancements that allows the kings to kill more people. So instead of Cain killing Abel with a rock, they can kill with a bronze weapon or an iron weapon or a big long phalanx spear the Greeks had or a scimitar sword that the Muslims had or gunpowder that the Chinese invented. The weapon improves, but it's that same fallen nature of Cain killing Abel. It just keeps getting bigger. There's an Askamite empire in Africa. And then Attila the Hun, 45080, he has an army of a half a million soldiers. And they're wiping out cities across Europe. And then you have Justinian with the Byzantine empire. And then Islam comes along. In the 7th century, conquers from the Persian Gulf to the Atlantic Ocean, conquers Spain, and then he's, Muslims are stopped from invading Europe. And you have Char- Charles Martel stops him, and his grandson is Charlemagne. And he controls all of Europe. He's got the biggest empire, 800 AD. And then the Vikings come along in the year 1000, boats with low keels. They go up every river in Europe and Russia, and they've got the biggest empire. And then Genghis Khan, 1200 AD. He's got the biggest empire. He conquers from Korea to Hungary, kills 30 million people. And then his grandsons, Kublai Khan, then Tamerlane, and then Ivan the Terrible of Russia. And then you cross over to the Western Hemisphere, and the same thing's happening over here. With Montezuma is the head of the Aztec Empire and Atahualpa in Inca, Peru, and he's the head of their empire. And, and then the 1500s, the king of Spain has the biggest empire that planet Earth had ever seen. And the Philippines are named after his son, King Philip of Spain. And then the 1600s, you've got the king of France, and the 1700s, you have the king of England. So kings is the norm. In other words, gangs are the default setting for human government. And all a king is is a glorified gang leader. <laughs> and he just happens to have the latest military advancements and a big army and with technology to attract people. And ultimately, it's going to max out on a global level. If any of these guys hadn't have died, any one of them would have been happy to be the Antichrist <laughs> and rule the world. So in that sense, death is a blessing and the devil has to start from scratch again, right? And, um, uh, and, uh, and all the empires of the world are ruled through fear. Uh, you do what the king says or he kills you. And uh, it's interesting when the devil came, tempted Jesus, and he took him to a high hill and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these for their mine. They've been given to me and I can give them to whoever I will. 
And of course, Jesus says, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. But you think of a second, that's pretty audacious of the devil to say all the kingdoms are his, and he can give them to whoever he wants. When did he get them? When Adam sinned. Adam was in charge of the garden. He named everything. You name something, you have authority over it. You have kids, you get to name your kids, right? Adam named everything. He was the authority. But the Bible says, to whomever you yield your members, servants to obey, to him you are a servant. The moment Adam obeyed Satan, he was posturing himself as the one taking the orders and the devil usurped as the one giving the orders. And that's when the devil took control. And one thing's common with all the kingdoms of the world, they're ruled through fear. And, um, and so... Uh, picking up with that, uh, you have kings ruling through fear, and um, ancient Israel, by the way, when they come out of Egypt around 1400 BC, and for 400 years they had no king, that's the first instance in world history of a nation with millions of people and no king. And, uh, you know, we read the book of Judges, it's a little bit confusing, you know, there's Samson and Jephthah and all these different ones being raised up, and, and you think, oh, it's sort of unorganized. Well, no, it's maximum individual liberty. And so you, you have kings who rule through fear, but in ancient Israel, there was no king for 400 years. Everybody was taught the law, and everybody was personally accountable to God to follow the law. So you're about to steal, nobody's around, you know you can get away with it, and then you think, God's watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable in the future. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in your head called a conscience. If everybody in the country believes it, you can maintain complete order with no police, with no king ruling through fear, right? And so you take the, the power of the king, you give it to the people. It's chaos unless the people are taught morals and virtue or the law. What motivates them to follow the law is they're accountable to God. You know, I was thinking of a... Uh, way of explaining the law. Imagine if you could download a behavioral app on your iPhone. We all, we all have a GPS app that tells you where to turn, right? Five, 50 yards ahead, turn left. But imagine if you could download a behavioral app that would tell you how to act <laughs> in real time. It's monitoring your blood pressure and your voice volume when there's somebody in the close vicinity and, it's, and it runs this algorithm. You're about to lose your temper and it sends you a little alert. <laughs> Don't lose your temper. <laughs> and then it monitors your bank account. It's a little low. And then it geopositions. You're, you're in a store with expensive items and nobody's in the vicinity. Runs this algorithm. You're being tempted to steal. <laughs> Alert. Don't steal. So imagine if everybody downloads this behavioral app. Well, that's what the law was to the Israelites. Everybody in ancient Israel downloaded. And the Levites were the computer geeks that help you to download the app. It's like, where do you get that app? Well, it's Google Play, Apple Store, whatever. You line upon line, precept upon precept, press this little button there. So everybody in ancient Israel had downloaded the law. But the big question is, why would you follow it? What would motivate you to follow the law? Well, those three things I mentioned. There's a God who's watching everyone. He wants you to be fair. He's going to hold you accountable in the future. And so um, now God knew the Israelites would sin. And rather than them walk around the rest of their life with a guilty conscience waiting to get judged, once a year, they had the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the temple. Right? So you got this tabernacle in the wilderness, and there's this box covered with gold. And on inside is the Ten Commandments, and on top are the two angels. And in the, between them is the presence of the Lord. And when they would sprinkle the blood on there, it was saying, we've sinned, but this, this animal took the judgment in our place. 
and here's the blood. So there's the presence of the Lord he's looking down at the law and sees the people. If the high priest would have approached without the blood, he would have been judged. But he's like, look, it, it, paid, it paid for us, you know, like the blood over the doorpost of their house in, in ancient Egypt. And, um, and so obviously that's foreshadowing Jesus. He's our atonement. We've sinned and we're anticipating judgment. But then Jesus paid the price for our judgment. He paid the price for our sins. His blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And so all the judgment we deserve has been paid by Jesus. And um, anyway, so back to the history. Um, so these kings keep getting bigger and bigger, and you have to believe the way the king tells you to believe. What the king believed, the kingdom had to believe. Right? Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue. When I blow the trumpets, you bow. You have, I don't care if you have a warm feeling in your heart for my statue. <laughs> you bow or I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. Right? And so it was the kings telling people what to believe. And um, so you got the Romans, you know, killing the Christians. And, but then the Reformation comes along in 1517, Martin Luther. And you have kingdoms deciding to split away. And people deciding to become Lutherans and become Protestants. And the kings didn't like that. And so you had this uh, king of Spain. His name was Philip, and he sends the Iron Duke of Alba, who successfully fought the Muslims on the Mediterranean, but then after, instead of freeing the Mediterranean up from the Muslims, he decides to send him to Antwerp, Holland, that had become a Protestant city, and this Iron Duke of Alba, Alba kills 10,000 Protestants and leaves their bodies in the streets. And then the King Philip decides to send his armada to smash the Reformation in England because it became Protestant. And then you got France. And about 10 to 15% of France is Protestant Huguenots. Now, I don't want to get into Catholic Protestant because there were Protestants killing Catholics and Catholics killing Protestants and Protestants killing Protestants, you know, Puritans and Anglicans and, and Catholics were killing Catholics. The Catholics of Spain killing the Catholics of France. A lot of killing going on in the 1500s, so we don't want to reopen that. But we do want to trace where America came from. And so, uh, so France, about 10% is Protestant, and the main Protestant leader is Henry of Navarre, and the queen is Catherine de Medici, and she decides to have a wedding with her daughter Margaret and the, the main Protestant leader, Henry Navarre. It's going to be a big wedding in Paris. A couple days after the wedding, she has her soldiers pull chains across the street so the carriages can't get out of town, and she sends her soldiers house to house, and they kill 30,000 Protestant leaders who had been in Paris for this big, wonderful wedding, and now they throw their bodies in the Seine River. And so um, you have a problem going on. For centuries, it was taught, Romans 13, you got to obey the government. It says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. It's like, okay, we got to submit to the government. But what if the government literally wants to kill your wife and kids? There's a mandate. I just got a mandate from the government. Bring your wife and kids. We're going to kill them. It's like, are you supposed to obey that? And so in the French-speaking area of Switzerland, you got a guy named John Calvin. And he begins to write things like this. When kings disobey God, they automatically abdicate their worldly power. He writes in his institutes, we are subject to the men who rule over us, but subject only in the Lord. If they command anything against him, let us not pay the least regard to it. In other words, the Bible says children obey your parents. But what if there is a bad parent that tells the kid to sell themselves into prostitution and sell drugs and kill the neighbor? Is the child supposed to obey the parent and kill the neighbor? No. The child obeys the parent as long as the parent's telling them to do something that lines up with God's word. 
you obey the government as long as the government is telling you to do something that lines up with God's word. I mean, um, this is exactly the same as Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail, 1963. He said, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. One not only has a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. (laughs) You obey the government laws as long as the government laws line up with God's law. I mean, think of it. Why would God tell you to do something in his law and then tell you to obey a government that tells you not to do what he just got done telling you to do? (laughs) Right? And so, you, uh, so here's John Calvin in Switzerland in the 1500s coming up with a way for us to rule ourselves without a king. And it's called a covenant form of government. And this is where everybody is involved and we covenant ourselves together and we're going to rule ourselves without a king. And it was pretty revolutionary. And where did he get his ideas? From the Bible from ancient Israel. And so this covenant form of government is you get blessings from God and you voluntarily share them with your neighbor because you're doing it as unto God. You get rights from God and you're fair to your neighbor because you're accountable to God who is not a respecter of persons. And so uh, where did these Calvinist Puritans get their idea? The Bible. But what part of the Bible? This is interesting. The first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. So we read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, all the way up till Samuel anoints King Saul. We have this 400-year period where you have millions of people and no king. It was a total anomaly in world history that you don't appreciate until you zoom out and you look at all the rest of the world, you realize how unique this 400-year period was in ancient Israel. They come out of Egypt, they're slaves for 400 years, they can't even read, and suddenly they get downloaded, this most unique form of government that's so contrary to human nature where you have gangs and the toughest gang leader is the one who's in charge and if you're friends with the king, you're more equal. You're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're an enemy of the king, you're dead. I mean, that's the default setting. You put some kids on a playground, one's gonna be the bully. You put some junior high girls in a clique and one of them's gonna be the diva. <laughs> right? You put some people in the woods, one of them is an Indian chief. You put them in an inner city, one of them is a gang leader and all the kings is a glorified gang leader. And that's the norm. And here you have Israel getting downloaded in one fell, one download, this form of government with no king, and it works because every citizen is taught the law and personally accountable to God to follow the law. And so this 400-year period before King Saul is called the Hebrew Republic. And the Puritan Calvinist scholars that studied it were called Christian Hebraists. So these were Christians, they were Puritans, they were Reformists, they were Calvinists, and they were studying this amazing way that Israel was able to keep a government without a king. And so King Saul, in a sense, is the divider between England and America. 
So the kings of England looked to the Bible for their authority, but they looked to this anointed King Saul and on period of the Bible. The Calvinist Puritans that settled New England, they looked to the Bible for their authority, but they looked to the pre-King Saul period of this 400 years with no king. So both of them looked to the Bible for authority, but it's King Saul that's the divider between the England, oh, the anointed king, and the Calvinist Puritans this 400-year period before. Now, um, let's see, I just went through this already. We obey the law because we're accountable to God. And um, anyway, so the Calvinist Puritans, a way to have a government without a king, uh, they looked to the Bible, and where Jesus says, upon this rock I'll build my church, the word church in Greek is ekklesia. So ek is Greek, it means out of, and klesia means a calling a calling out of. And so in the city of Athens, a Greek city, they had 6,000 citizens and they would call them out of their homes to the marketplace so they could decide what needs to happen in the city and they would divvy up responsibilities. Right? Somebody's got to you know, fix the wall. Somebody's got to get the Navy going. Somebody's got to take care of the kids. Somebody's got to do this. So there's no king and there's the citizens deciding what needs. And so Jesus chose this word to set upon the, this rock, I'll build my ecclesia, I'll build my body. It's like everybody's got to be a part. An eye, an ear, a foot. You, you know, everybody's going to do something. We all work together. And in this model of government, church government, is different than the king's model of church government. So the kings of England had a hierarchical church government. What's that? So the king was the head of the Anglican church. Then you have the Archbishop of Canterbury, Archbishop of York, and the deaneries and vicars and curates and rectors and priests. And your relationship with God is through this hierarchical structure, and it's called clergy laity. The clergy does all the ministry, and the laity is lazy and watches. And so when the Reformation happened, and you had this emphasis on this first 400 years without a king, it turned into this church government that was called congregational or assembly. And the idea is the pastor's job is to get everyone to have their own relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ that died on the cross to pay for their sins. And then the pastor coaches every believer to become a mature Christian. All right, grow up. You have to start reading the Bible for yourself. Read through it every year. And you pray every day. And you get in the habit. And then you put, and then you get filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you put yourself in a position where there's a need. Junior high, children's church, outreach. You do something because everything that's alive takes in and gives out. Right? An apple tree takes in water, takes in carbon dioxide, and gives off apples. Right? The, the Dead Sea takes in water, but it doesn't give out, so it's become dead. And so every muscle to grow has to be exercised. For you to grow in your Christian walk, you don't just hear a good sermon. You hear a good sermon, and then you fill with the Holy Spirit. Then you put yourself in a position where there's a need. And then the Holy Spirit will use you to meet the need. Right? There's, there's somebody that's discouraged. And you're around them, and you'll, you'll start sharing with them. And you'll find yourself saying some really smart things. And you'll, you'll be sort of impressed with yourself. Like, that was pretty smart. I didn't know I was that smart. You're not. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit, right, using you and speaking through you to minister to what that person needs to hear, right? And, and you've got some money, and there's a person with need, and you use what God has blessed you with to give them, and you feel this joy on the inside because you were used by God to meet a need. 
right? And so this is a, the congregational form emphasizes everybody being raised up into the ministry and doing something in this body of Christ grows and the king of England didn't like that. He liked the hierarchical model because he was in charge. And so um, the king decided that he was going to persecute these Calvinist Puritans, these pilgrims, and he said, I will make them conform themselves or I will harry them out of the land. By the way, I um, wanted to mention, that's why I hated the COVID response so much, because it was changing church structure. It's like, go home and, and you can watch a screen and get a good message. So you're taking in, but how, what are you going to do? Witness to your pillow? I mean, you don't have anything to give out, right? That's why I love it that churches have lobbies and they have coffee and they have bookstores. Why? Because ministry takes place. The older lady sees the younger lady and she looks a little discouraged. What's wrong, honey? Well, the job, the husband, the kids. Is, and she can pray for her and minister. And the, the older guy sees the younger guy and says, hey, we're all getting, some of those guys getting together. We're doing it. And he can sort of disciple it. And the pastor doesn't have to organize it. It's happening because people are filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Word of God around somebody with a need, and water seeks its own level, right? But the COVID response was shut all that down and just hear a good message. And Anyway, so, so the king of England said, I don't like this congregational. I want to get back to this hierarchical. I'm going to make you obey my government mandates. I'm going to tell you when you can have church and how many can be in the church and how close you have to be together and all those other guys. And, and if you don't follow my mandates, he says, I'm going to harry you out of the land. And so he put the pressure on, and you had these groups fleeing. And so the little pilgrim separatists decided to flee to the Netherlands. And then after 12 years, Spain was going to attack. And so they flee the Netherlands, and they go to America. They were going to go to Jamestown and submit to the king's government, because Jamestown was started in 1607, and it was an Anglican colony. But they get blown off course, and they land in Massachusetts. They try sailing south, but there's a storm, and the pilgrims almost sink off the coast of Cape Cod. It's really shallow. 3,000 ships have sunk off the coast of Cape Cod. It's called the Graveyard of Ships. So the pilgrims almost sink. And the captain says, too dangerous to try to make it to Virginia. He goes back to Plymouth Rock and he says, everybody off the boat. And these people say, okay, uh, we'll get off, but who's going to be in charge of us? There's no king-appointed person in our little boat. We were going to go to Jamestown and submit to the king's government. And you're telling us to get off the boat. Or, we don't, don't want to be lawless Everybody do whatever they want, and it's going to turn into chaos. We have to come up with some kind of government. What do they do? They take their pilgrim, Calvinist, Puritan, congregational form of church government, and they make it their government government. It's called the Mayflower Compact. And it says, we, in the presence of God, covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic. They take a religious word, covenant, and they make it into a political form of government. Do you know what the word federal means in Latin? Covenant. Federal government. It's a covenant form of government. Right? So we in the presence of God covenant ourselves together into a civil body politics. So you have a church group, 102 of them in this little boat. There's no king of poor persons, no person with a mandate. 102 of them, they covenant themselves together and they form their form of government. So a church group turns itself into a political group. Now, why did they do that? To enact just and equal laws that shall be thought most meet or necessary unto which we promise all due submission. Simple, revolutionary. It was a polarity change in the flow of power on planet Earth. Instead of top-down rule by kings and sultans and czars and maharajas and Genghis Khan, it's ruled bottom-up by we. 
just a little 102 of us. We're going to covenant ourselves together. It's the difference between a dead pyramid ruled top down and a living tree where every root and every tiny little capillary root sucks in nutrients and works together to keep the tree alive. Every single person has a part. And so it's the difference between divine right of kings, God put me here and you do what I say or I'm going to rule through fear, or we the people. Now, where did these pilgrims get this idea that they could rule themselves without a king? Their pastor, John Robinson, who was not an Anglican king-appointed pastor. He was a congregational pastor, right? He was actually a Baptist pastor that split off from Pastor John Smith's church, S-M-Y-T-H, so not the Pocahontas, Virginia, different John Smith. His little church broke off, and so they were a church group. And this painting hangs in our U.S. Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C., And so this covenant form of government, you get blessings from God, you'll voluntarily share them with your neighbor because you're accountable to God. Here's what the pilgrim pastor John Robinson wrote. We are knit together as a body in covenant of the Lord, tied to care for each other's good. So this is different from socialism. Socialism is where the government takes away all your stuff against your will and gives it to their supporters. (laughs) And, um, but no, this is where you get stuff from God. It's yours. And then you voluntarily share that with your neighbor because you're doing it as unto God. So then you have Puritan founder of Massachusetts, John Winthrop. And he says this love among Christians is a real thing, not imaginary, necessary to the body of Christ. We are a company professing ourselves fellow members of Christ. We ought to account ourselves knit together by this bond of love. We must make one another's condition our own. Rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us. So we're going to care for each other. Right? It's not the government, somebody up in the government. We're going to take away yours and we're going to give it. No, no, no. We're all there filled with the Holy Spirit around people with needs. God blesses us and he puts us in a position to meet the need. Margaret Thatcher says, your founding fathers looked after one another as a matter of duty to their God. And so Os Guinness said, covenantal ideas in England were a lost cause, but they became the winning cause in New England covenant-shaped constitutionalism. The American Constitution was a nationalized, secularized form of government. Covenant. Covenant lies behind Constitution. In other words, America started as a church plant. They took the church form of government, congregational, and they made it the government form of government we call the U.S. Constitution. And um, so the King of England turns up the heat, and this between 1630 and 1640, nearly 20,000 of these Puritan covenant people flee and settle New England. And so you have something unique. You have pastors and their churches forming cities. You have a pastor, John Lothrop, and his church founded Barnstable, Massachusetts, and a pastor, Roger Williams, and his church founded Providence, Rhode Island, and a pastor, John Wheelwright, and his church founded Exeter, New Hampshire, and a pastor, Thomas Hooker, and his church founded Hartford, Connecticut. This was unique on the planet. At this time, you have Russian czars, Muslim sultans, Indian maharajas, Chinese emperors, African chieftains, the whole world's kings, and here you have pastors and their churches founding cities. And so this is 50 years before Europe's Age of Enlightenment, right? These are the pastors that fled from the Anglicans. And here, let's look at Thomas Hooker. In Boston, the Puritans said only Puritans could vote. Thomas Hooker said, no, anybody who's a Christian should be allowed to vote. That was a big enough deal for him to say, we're leaving. And he and his church founded Hartford. And they get there, and the church members come to the pastor 
and say, Pastor, can you preach a sermon on how we're supposed to set up our government? So he gives a sermon in 1638 titled, The Foundation of Authority is Laid in the Free Consent of the People. This is reflected in our declaration, government from the consent of the governed. And this is different from Europe because the kings of Europe did not ask the people for their consent. <laughs> can you imagine the king saying, oh, people, can I do this, please? No, I got my army. I'm going to make you do it out of fear, right? And so this was the, uh, his sermon goes on, the privilege of election belongs to the people. Amen. And that's reflected in our constitution, we the people. And then his sermon says, they who have the power to appoint officers and magistrates, it is in their power also to set the bounds and limitations of their power. So Calvin Coolidge says, Reverend Thomas Hooker of Connecticut, as early as 1638, said in a sermon, the foundation of authority is laid in the free consent of the people. Right? You, you get to give your input. This doctrine found wide acceptance among the nonconformist clergy who later made up the congregational church. And so his sermon was written down. It's called the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, and it was used as the Constitution of Connecticut from 1639 up until 1818. Connecticut was using the pastor's sermon as their constitution, and that's why they call Connecticut the Constitution State. Here's a plaque in England. It says, Thomas Hooker, founder of the state of Connecticut, father of American democracy. Another plaque in England, Thomas Hooker, Puritan clergyman, reputed father of American democracy. A statue of Thomas Hooker holding a Bible on the old state capitol grounds in Hartford. At the base, it says, leading his people through the wilderness, he founded Hartford. On this site, he preached the sermon, which inspired the fundamental orders. It was the first written constitution that created a government. Another plaque, here ministered Thomas Hooker, peerless leader in New England thought and life in both church and state. Another plaque, Thomas Hooker, a leader preacher, statesman who based all civil authority on the free consent of the people. This was a big deal in world history that we don't appreciate till we zoom out and see it's all kings and pharaohs and sultans and they rule through fear and people don't have any consent. You got to follow the government mandates. And so it was so important they chiseled it in stone. Our form of government where we get to vote, we get to decide, comes out of this church government. Here's another plaque in Hartford. Here on this site, May 31st, 1638, Thomas Hooker preached his famous sermon, The Foundation of Authority is Laid in the Free Consent of the People, and then representatives of the people adopt his sermon as the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut. And what do they say? The people can join ourselves to be as one public state or commonwealth. So again, the people, who's the people? It's the church, the church members. So you have a church group forming itself into a public state, very similar to the pilgrims. We, we covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic. Now, why did they do that? To preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which we now profess. They picked the form of government that would best preserve the freedom to preach the gospel. And um, another plaque, lots of plaques. This one says... Thomas Hooker's congregation established the form of government upon which the present Constitution of the United States is modeled. Do you grasp the significance of this? Church government, everybody's involved, becomes colonial government, everybody's involved, becomes our U.S. Constitution, we the people. So in New England, instead of separation of church and state, it was the pastors and their churches that created the state. How could you say, pastor, don't preach on politics 
when it's the pastor's sermon that's their constitution. How could you say church members don't get involved in politics when all there was in Hartford was the church members? There were like no non-church members to be lazy and let them run stuff. And so the word politics is Greek. It comes from the word polis, which means city. Indianapolis, Minneapolis, polis means city. Politics is the business of the city. And all there was in the city of Hartford was the church. So they had one building called a meeting house. And that's where the pastor would teach the Bible. And that's where they would gather together and do their city business. The word synagogue means meeting house. That's where the rabbis would teach the law, and that's where they would gather together and do their city business. I mean, why build a separate building just to talk about a different topic? And so when the Revolutionary War starts, the British send over a military governor, Thomas Gage, and he outlaws meeting houses. Democracy is too prevalent in America. We don't need the people meeting and discussing things and giving their consent to things. You just obey government mandates. And, um, and so the idea of Romans 13 in Europe is different than America. Well, so let's read. What does it say? Let everyone be subject to the governing authority. Well, here's a question for you. Who is the ultimate governing authority in America? It's we the people. The politicians are our servants. You hire them, you fire them. You vote them in, you vote them out. We're the, pe- we're the king. The word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. A republic is where the citizens are king, ruling through their representatives. So when we pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic, we're basically pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves. So when somebody protests the flag, what they're saying is, I don't want to be the king anymore. I protest this system or I participate in ruling myself. It's like, okay, somebody else will tell you what to do. So kings have subjects who are subjected to their will. Democracies and republics have citizens. And the word citizen is Greek. It means co-sovereign, co-ruler, co-king. And so it takes the authority of the believer message and expands it. Right? So you don't just have authority in your, over the problems in your life, kicking the devil out, and you have authority in your family to be godly, and you have authority in the church, to, and then, but you have authority in the community and, and in the country. Yes. It's an empowering of the believer. And so uh, Lincoln said, the people of these United States are the rightful masters of both Congresses and courts. And then I love this Grover Cleveland quote. The sovereignty of 60 millions of free people is the working out of the divine right of man to govern himself, a manifestation of God's plan concerning the human race. And uh, Coolidge, the principles which went into the Declaration of Independence are found in the sermons of the early colonial clergy. They preached um, in order that they might have freedom to express these thoughts and opportunities to put them into action, whole congregations with their pastors migrated to the colonies. So that's the 1600s. It's amazing. They have a plan where we can all get involved and we all rule ourselves without a king, but it takes everybody because everybody is going to be involved in this covenant. After a century, it got a little dry. And these Calvinist Puritans were called old lights. And some of them got so plan-focused. We got this plan. We can rule ourselves. It got so plan-focused that uh, it was only a plan. And some of them even said, well, you know what? God even already planned who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell. So why even bother preaching the gospel? 
and they got like spiritually, like, you know, not even evangelizing. And David Brainerd got expelled from Yale because he said his professor was as spiritual as a chair. (laughs) And some of the Yale students went down and were witnessing in the little town of New Haven and presenting the gospel to strangers, and they got reprimanded by the school leadership. I mean, they weren't like having drunken brawls. They weren't like smashing windows and setting things on fire. They were doing this terrible, they were going up to complete strangers and presenting the gospel with a bad student. (laughs) And so in the early 1700s, you have the new lights. Old lights, new lights. And these new lights are revivalists. They say it's more than a plan. You have to have an experience with Jesus. And, um, and so now let's take apart these revivalists. They go back to the pietist Lutherans. Well, what's that? So Martin Luther starts the Reformation in 1517 because he had a personal revelation, the just should live by faith. So personal he was willing to stand up to the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor and say, unless you can prove me wrong from the Scriptures, here I stand, so help me God. Personal to him, but some German princes want to break from Rome. And they said, this is my chance. Kingdom of mine, I just decided you are all now Lutherans. The people in the kingdom's like, okay, we're Lutheran. What do we believe? <laughs> so for the people in the kingdoms, it's not the same personal experience Martin Luther had. It's just a new state doctrine, a little more scriptural emphasis, but it's a new state doctrine. And so a revival movement starts called pietism that said being a Christian is more than agreeing with a state doctrine. Even if it's good, you have to have an experience with Jesus. And when you do, your life will change. And you won't do the worldly things you used to do, like go to bars and brothels and loot theater and get involved in government. Wait, what was that last thing? Yeah, Yeah, government's filled full of worldly people. If you're really a Christian, you won't be involved in government. Whoa, Calvinist Puritans, like, everybody get involved. We can can be the government. We can rule ourselves. And these revivalist pietists said, no, no, don't get involved. It's dirty. It's worldly. So have you ever met somebody that says, oh, we just preach the gospel. We don't get involved in politics stuff. Oh, we're we're a little more spiritual than you are. You haven't reached the spiritual level that we have by not being involved. You're still involved. And so, you, right, this is where that came from, these pietists. And so it turned into the German concept of the two kingdoms, the kingdom of the government, the kingdom of the church, and the two don't touch. There were even German princes that would donate money to the pietists so they would teach their people not to get involved in the prince's business. Here's a little more money. Stay out of my hair. Right? And so four centuries of that, of that in Germany allowed Hitler to seize power and put Jews on train cars. And they were going by the church crying out for help. And the church's response was, well, that's the government doing that. And we're the church and there are two different circles. We can't. So, so let's just sing praise songs to Jesus louder. Can somebody see there's something wrong with that picture? And so the Calvinist Puritans, old lights, they had a great plan, but they got so plan focused it became spiritually dry. Pietist Lutherans, came up with this new light that it's a personal experience, but it's so personal, it's only personal. And you just focus on your own relationship with God and forget what you're leaving to your kids. And um, so again, recapping, Calvinist Puritans, good, plan for us to rule ourselves without a king, bad, so plan focus became formal, dry, and spiritually dead. Uh, Lutheran Pietists, good, you have a relationship with Jesus, bad, it's so personal, it's only personal. You're just going to withdraw, and it's just me, and I don't really care what I'm going to leave my kids. And um, now I do want to mention that these Pietist Lutherans did emphasize a personal experience with Jesus, and it sparked revivals that spread around the world. 
and you have uh, this German kingdom called Moravia, and this guy named Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. He's 19 years old. He, he's royalty. He goes on his grand tour, meets these um, uh, you know, kings and courts across Europe. He sees a painting of Christ in a museum in Dusseldorf with a crown of thorns. Underneath it says, all this I have done for you, what are you doing for me? This 19-year-old guy goes back to his estate in Moravia, which is a German kingdom bordering the Czech Republic, and he decides to open up his farm to let persecuted Christians of Europe come and live on it. Because you got this European situation, if you don't believe the way the king did, you're persecuted, so they have all these people fleeing. And they come to his farm, and it looks good until they start bickering with each other. It's about to fall apart. So he leaves his nice house, lives with them, and he decides they need to forgive each other and have a communion service. And so they have a communion service, and they decide to pray all night. The next day, the next night. Then they take turns with the kids and the food and the farm, and they pray all week, all month, all year. That prayer meeting went on uninterrupted for 100 years. And this little group of Moravians, these Christian Lutheran pietist ministers, they went all around the world. They went to Canada, Alaska, Greenland, Intuit, Labrador, Costa Rica, Belize, Haiti, Cherokee, Lenape, Algonquin, the Baltics, uh, Suriname, French Guiana, Peru, the islands in the East Indies, and Egypt, the Copts, northern Zanzibar, Kenya, Rwanda. They're not supported by any missionary sending society. It is just a young couple Right? Or a couple guys that said, we feel led to go to Ten- Tanzania. And they would just leave and go to this, find a way to get into the country. And they would learn the language and they would work two and three jobs. And on the side, they would present the gospel. They weren't getting any checks in the mail. It was just, imagine all the woke energy that young kids have. Instead of burning things and tearing things down, they're risking their lives and doing the impossible, going around the world to spread the gospel to all these hostile places, right? And so there's a boatload of these Moravians coming to Georgia. And on the boat is John and Charles Wesley. And they're in a storm. And it's a bad storm. And the Wesleys are panicking, thinking, we're going to die. And they go into the part of the boat where the Moravians are, and they're just singing praise songs to Jesus. They're not, not afraid of anything. Well, we're already dead, and our life is in with Christ and God, and if he wants us here, wants us in heaven, whatever he wants us, we're just his. And the Wesleys are like, you guys have a personal experience with Jesus that we don't have. The Wesleys had the holy club at Oxford where they were just legalistic to the, to the extreme. You know, well, we want to be really, really holy, and it's all works and works and works. And they run into these, and so they sort of fail in Georgia. The Wesleys go back to England, and then they meet another Moravian who invites them to a prayer meeting. And uh, John Wesley says, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where these Moravians were, and where they were reading Luther, right, Martin Luther's preface to the epistles of the Romans, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I did, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John Wesley had a personal experience with Jesus. And he called, um, um, so he goes over and lives with the Moravians in this little kingdom next to the Czech Republic for eight months, calls it the religion of the heart. You guys are believing something. because. And so he goes back to England and he starts this revival movement called Methodism. And so he said, look, it's more than Anglican doctrine. You have to have an experience with Jesus. And he gets his friend George Whitfield involved, and he's preaching seven times up and down the colonies in America, spreading this great awakening revival. It's not just doctrine. You have to have a personal experience with Jesus. And, um, and, but the byproduct was that you're, uh, you're not going to be involved in politics. 
And so the founder of the Lutheran Church in America was Henry Muhlenberg, and he has two sons. Uh, they're pietists. They're not involved. John Peter Muhlenberg and Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, and uh, the Revolutionary War starts, and John Peter hears Patrick Henry's give me liberty, give me death speech. He goes to George Washington and says, I want to help. Washington said, I'm going to make you a colonel. Go get your men. And so he goes back to his church, and he preaches a sermon out of Ecclesiastes, time for all things, time to gather stones, time to scatter stones, time to preach, time to fight. Takes off his clerical robe, and underneath he has a uniform of a continental officer. And then he has an altar call. 300 men of his church come forward. They kiss their wives goodbye. They ride off to become the 8th Virginia Regiment. They fight in all these battles. He's promoted to general. After the war, he's elected to Congress. And his statue is in the U.S. Capitol. There he is, taking off his black clerical robe, and he's got a uniform on. And he's in the first session of the U.S. Congress. Well, his brother, Frederick, is writing letters to John Peter, saying, you have become too involved in matters which, as a preacher, you have nothing whatsoever to do. And John Peter writes back and accuses his brother of being a Tory British sympathizer. Frederick writes back and says he could not serve two masters. Right? The German concept of the two kingdoms, the kingdom of the government, the kingdom of the church, I can't serve both. And then the British invade New York and burn Frederick's church. And he's watching his church being burnt, and he has to flee with his wife and kids. And then he has a little change of heart, and he says, maybe I should get involved. <laughs> and then he gets elected to Congress, and he's elected the first speaker of the House. The first speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives is Lutheran pastor Pietist turned getting involved, Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. And who else is in that first session of the U.S. Congress? His brother, John Peter Muhlenberg. And what do they pass in that first session? The First Amendment. Does anybody honestly think that these two pastors would vote to outlaw themselves? <laughs> pastors aren't supposed to be involved in politics, even though we are pastors and we are involved. <laughs> No, the First Amendment as well as the first 10 amendments were handcuffs on the federal government to keep it from becoming a big Frankenstein monster like King George III was. They wanted to take the power of the king, separate it into three branches, separate it federal to state level. They wanted to take this, this Nimrod Tower of Babel and they wanted to scatter it. In a sense, all the Constitution is is a way to keep a president from ruling through mandates and executive orders to prevent one-person rule. Right? They wanted to separate it. Anyway, now... So the 1600s, you have these Calvinist Puritans coming up with this amazing plan that we can rule ourselves without a king. 1700s, the Pietist Lutherans saying, no, 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 don't get involved in government. It's dirty. It's worldly. You have to be holy and not involved. Well, actually, there's a middle of the road. The middle of the road is it is a personal experience with Jesus, but you want to be involved so you can have a country where your kids can have a personal experience with Jesus. Because if you don't get involved... They're going to teach in school that they're not only that there's no God. And if there is a God, he is messed up. And he's putting men in women's bodies, and you have to have operations to fix it, and, op and lifetimes of pharmaceuticals and drugs and infections and diapers and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and then if sex outside of marriage is not sin, then arguably there are no sins. And if there's no sins, you don't need a Savior. And so they're undermining the entire gospel. They're teaching, an, and they're, 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 their tactic is to guilt trip you into being more Christian than Christ. If you're really Christian, you will be silent while we teach your kids an anti-Christian gospel. <laughs> and um, so the most important thing is to bring people to Christ. The second most important thing is to preserve the freedom to do the most important thing. And so um, and, now um, and there's, there's more there, and I'm going to have to skip past some of it. But here's one little part. So is it holier to be silent? Numbers chapter 30 
as a, his little line, it says, if a daughter binds herself with a vow while she's still in her father's house in her youth and her father hears about the vow and he holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand. But if the father overrules her on the day that he hears it, then none of her vows shall stand and the Lord releases her. That's come down to us as vows in a wedding ceremony. And the pastor tells the church members, if you are silent when you hear these vows, you're giving consent to the vows. Speak now, forever hold your peace. Well, if a church member's silence gives consent to wedding vows, their silence gives consent to other things. And if they're killing babies in the community and you're silent, you're giving consent to killing babies. And um, it's called the rule of tacit admission. It's in law. Matter of fact, it's in our Constitution. There's a, uh, Article 1, Section 7 says, that if any bill is returned to the, given to the president and the president doesn't return it or do anything with it for 10 days, then it automatically becomes law as if he signed it. So he doesn't have to do anything. He's just silent, just sitting there, doesn't do anything with it. In 10 days, it's automatically law, as if he had signed it. So his silence gives consent. So uh, here's a verse, um, Leviticus 20. Any Israelite or foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech is to be put to death if the members of the community close their eyes when that man sacrifices one of his children to Molech, I myself will set my face against him and his family and will cut them off from their people together. So all you have to do is just be silent while they're killing the kid and you're guilty. And so California had a bill to kill babies 28 days after birth. And there was enough pastors, black, Asian, Hispanic, white, that said enough. And they went to Sacramento and they pressured these politicians to change the wording of it. It's still a bad bill, but they took that part out. Proverbs 24, rescue those who are unjustly sentenced to death. Don't stand back and let them die. Don't try to disclaim responsibility by saying you didn't know about it. For God who knows all hearts knows yours. He knows you knew, and he will repay everyone according to his deeds. So Stephen was martyred, and Apostle Paul, Acts 22, is talking to the Lord, and he says, and when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death. Paul didn't throw a stone. He didn't say a word, but he knew his silence while they were killing him. He was just standing there silent. He knew he was guilty for the death of Stephen. Mordecai goes to Esther. It says there's a mandate to kill the Jews. If you remain silent at this time, deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, and you and your family will perish. Uh, Numbers 20, Moses and Aaron went to the door of the tabernacle and the Lord spake to Moses, take the rod, gather the assembly, thou and Aaron, speak to the rock and it shall give forth water. Well, Moses gathers the assembly, lifts up his, his hand with the rod and he smote the rock twice. The water came out abundantly and the Lord spake to Moses at the end of the chapter, Aaron will not enter the land because both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. It's like both? Aaron didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. That's just it. He heard God tell Moses, speak to the rock. When Moses lifted up the rod the first time, it probably took Aaron by surprise. That was Aaron's, I mean, that was Moses' sin. When Moses lifted up the rod the second time, Aaron knew what was coming and he didn't protest. He didn't say, whoa, Moses, hold it. I was there. I heard God say, no, he, he was silent. And in that instant he was guilty. So Moses's was a sin of commission. Aaron's was a sin of omission. And you got this wicked King Jehoiakim. He's taking Jeremiah's scroll and he has it read a little bit. Then he takes his pen knife and he cuts it and he sticks it in the fire. And it says the princes of Israel stood around and showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. It was clear that he was burning Jeremiah's prophecy and these guys were just watching it and it's clear they're guilty for it. 
And at least these other two guys, El Nathan and Delilah, urged the king not to burn the scroll. And they went down in records of voicing their opposition. Do you know the word Protestant comes from the word protest? Yeah, that's true. And um, uh, Ezekiel, son of man, when I say to somebody they're going to be killed and you don't warn them, then you're guilty. Uh, Here's an interesting verse. When a person sins and that he hears the utterance of a curse, swearing, and he is a witness and he does not make it known, then he shall bear his guilt. A commentary on that says, if you hear someone take God's name in vain and you are silent, it is the same as if you took God's name in vain. That even convicts me. (laughs) Do you know, um, as Proverbs 29, it says, whoso is partner with a thief hateth his own soul. He heareth cursing and berayeth it not. You know, a few years ago, there was the movie uh, Indiana Jones. And there's this scene where Harrison Ford's on the motorcycle and his dad, Sean Connery's in this little carriage next to it, you know. And, uh, and uh, Harrison Ford takes God's name in vain. And uh, Sean Connery <laughs> slaps him. And he goes, that's for blasphemy. <laughs> he heareth cursing and he berayeth it. It wasn't that long ago, yeah. right, that you would show that you are not in agreement with that. Now, you can do it politely, you can do it respectfully, but you can, you can say, look, excuse me, you know, uh, uh, that in Leviticus 19, it is wrong not to correct somebody who needs correcting. You know, they say, oh, if your kid's going through transition, just love them, just love them. You love your kid and you correct your kid. Yeah. All right, they're going to put something in, your, in their mouth. You say, look, you, can, you don't put that bad stuff in your mouth. They're going to walk across the street. You don't say, oh, I'm going to support you while you walk across in front of the traffic. No, you, you have rules. And, and so... Um, Samuel, uh, the little guy, he's hearing the voice of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, I will carry out against Eli everything I've spoken, because his sons blasphemed God, and he did not restrain them. And um, Martin Luther King Jr., he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetuate it. He who accepts evil without protesting it is really cooperating with it. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. So we've only preached half of Jesus. I mean, Jesus didn't sit around all day petting lambs. <laughs> there was a tough side to Jesus. His first sermon ended with them wanting to push him off a cliff. Another sermon ends with them picking up stones to stone him. He's invited to somebody's house for dinner, and the host notices Jesus didn't wash his hands. And Jesus says, you Pharisees are more concerned about the outside of the cup and not the inside. You're like a tomb, pretty on the outside, inside full of dead men's bones. And the attorney says, well, Jesus, by saying that, you're insulting us lawyers. He goes, let me tell you about you lawyers. You heap burdens on people too heavy to carry. You don't even lift a finger yourself. And he's laying into them. And then the chapter ends. And you wonder if they ever got around to eating dinner. <laughs> you sort of get the feeling he pushed them out of the house. This is our loving Jesus. To the prideful, he was tough as nails. To the humble, he was as loving as could be. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You approach Jesus humbly and broken, you've got open doors to his grace and mercy. You approach him with a a critical, prideful attitude, he's going to be tough. If you fall on the stone, you're broken. The stone falls on you, you're crushed. It says, a broken heart the Lord will not despise. And the sacrifices of the Lord are, are a broken and contrite heart. And he, the Lord is nigh unto those of a broken heart. When we're broken, then we're humble. And when we're humble, God's there for us. Yeah. Right? And um, so during World War II, Germany, it's still got those two kingdom things going on. And the guy, 
named Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, I can't be silent anymore. And so he starts a confessing church movement. He says, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. So the verse everybody knows is Leviticus 19, 18. What does it say? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know the verse right before that? Confront your neighbor directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. The verse right before, love your neighbor as yourself, so confront your neighbor. They're loving each other and they're confronting each other. It's a self-pleasing system. Another translation says, rebuke your neighbor directly so you'll not incur guilt because of him. It says, if your brother sin, rebuke him. Uh, rebuke a wise man and he will love thee. He that rebuketh a man afterwards shall find more favor than he that flattereth with his tongue. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. I mean, there's a part of the gospel that we sort of left out. Oh, we just got to love, you just got to accept. No, you, you speak out, you, you, you rebuke, all right? Um, and the revelation, many as I love, I rebuke and chasten and so forth. Preach the word, instant and season, reprove, rebuke. Now you can do it in love, right? And there's the one verse where it says, um, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, right? So you, you, entreat doesn't mean you're silent. It means you're, you're, you're petitioning him, you're right, but you're doing it respectfully. And um, so, um, so the, the question is, would Jesus teach that trans agenda in school? Jesus said, he who made them at the beginning made him male and female. So they're saying, if you're really Christian, you will be silent while we teach your kids something other than what Jesus taught. Yet um, Jesus said... Uh, if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. So it's going to be a rude awakening for all these church members that think they're being spiritual by not getting involved when they realize by their silence they're giving consent to all that bad stuff. They're inviting the judgment of God on their heads. So I just thought I'd come and give you a little encouragement today and lift you up and, you know. So there's a lot more there, but I'm going to skip past and then get to this last part here. And um, anyway, I got a lot too much stuff. Anyway, this was, this was interesting. Um, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? They said, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And of course, Peter says, you're the Christ. But let's analyze this. Some say they're John the Who's John the Baptist? Well, he was standing up to the corrupt government leader, King Herod. Who was Elijah? He was standing up to the corrupt government leader, King Ahab. Who was Jeremiah? He was standing up to the corrupt government leader, King Zedekiah. And they're mistaking Jesus for this. Jesus was standing up to the corruption. You know, the Peter was with a group around a fire, and we're human creatures. We want to be accepted. We don't want to be rejected. Most of the world calls it honor-shame culture. It's a very powerful force that they will, you, your people will give up their faith because they don't want to be kicked out of a group. And so here's Peter with his group around a fire, and a girl gets in his face and says, you're with Jesus. And you can just picture Peter looking around the fire, and everybody's eyeing him. And he goes, uh, I never met the guy. It's like, that's it? You caved that fast after three years of being with him? There is a real power and fear of being kicked out of a group. It's a real thing. But after the resurrection, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Sanhedrin said, we told you never to speak in his name again. And Peter said, it's better to obey God rather than men. Yes. Suddenly, Peter doesn't care about the group. He doesn't want care, care about what people say about him. I'm, I was mentioning to pastor, I said, you know, I think maybe one of the evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit is the standing up to corruption. <laughs> 
is just standing up to corrupt government leaders. I mean, here's Peter, he denied Christ and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he stands up to these corrupt government leaders. And um, anyway, and so it's almost like we're, we're being pushed toward a, um, a decision. So we're the bride of Christ. Every romance novel builds up to a decision-making moment. And what's the moment? A forsaking of all others and choosing the one. And God's like pushing the world. He's like, okay, we're getting close to the end of this romance novel. You need to make your decision. We're going to pull back the curtain and we're going to let Satan show himself. Like in The Wizard of Oz, we're going to pull it back and you're going to have Satan clubs on high school campuses. Satan worshiping Grammys. Satan clothes designers for Target or whatever. And and then people that are for the Lord are going to come out of the closet and they're going to be bolder for Jesus. And it's going to be a choice, God or the devil. Right? We're, we're winding this thing up. Make your choice, right? And some people are going to choose the all others. They're going to want to be liked and friended and followed so much that they'll deny their faith. And others are going to say, I don't care about the all others. All I care about is Jesus. And we're being pushed. And it's not just adults. It's going down into teenagers. It's going down into the class. It's going into schools. Every, it's, everybody's being pushed to make this decision. And, um, and so I, uh, I like the big, big picture. So we talked about zooming out. I don't know how I get all these slides. It sort of grows like yeast. Um, so, uh, so this is the one part. And, and I'm, if I can bend your ear for just a few more minutes, let's, let's zoom out and look at the ultimate zoom out. Why did God even make us? And so in 2003, they focused the powerful Hubble telescope on a spot in the sky where there was nothing. Tiny spot size of a grain of sand held between your fingers at arm's length against the night sky. Nothing there, which is sort of hard to do because when you've got an open night, there's lots of stars out there. But they found a spot and they focused the Hubble telescope on it for 11 days. Nothing there, but they developed the images. Lo and behold, in that spot was 10,000 galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars in each galaxy. It's called the Hubble Ultra Deep Space Field. And this is the picture This is not an artist's rendition. This is the furthest picture ever taken away from planet Earth. And every dot you see is a galaxy with hundreds of billions of stars. And now with the James Webb telescope, you can see it even clearer. And light travels in waves with blue being the shortest, fastest, and red being the slowest, longest wave. They saw the red shift, which means galaxies are moving away from us. They now estimate that the observable universe is 93 billion light years across and still expanding at the speed of light. And the largest star they found is Stephenson 2-18. It's a super gas giant. It's so large, if you were to place it in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. We're the third planet from the sun. Could you imagine one single star that enormous? And God made it all, and he made you. Why would he make you? What could you possibly offer a being that is that powerful? Nothing, except maybe something. What's a galaxy anyway? It's a bunch of rocks. Hot rocks, cold rocks, vaporized rocks, molten. A rock cannot love you. So it's almost like at some time in eternity past, God said, been there, done that. I can make everything. I would really like someone in my image that could love me. 
Now it gets interesting because love by definition must be voluntary. The moment it's forced, it evaporates. So in the context of everything God controls, time, matter, space, energy, he intentionally created one little thing he does not control, your will. Now he could control it if he wanted to, but that would defeat the very reason he made us different than everything else. He doesn't need our love. He's not incomplete and your love somehow completes him. He doesn't need your love, but he wants it. Parents don't need the love of their children, but they want it. And what's the most important thing in your life? Well, somewhere near the top of the list, it's loving and being loved. And if you're made in God's image, could it be that loving and being loved is a big deal to God? Right? He, he loves everything he created, but the big question is, could what he created love him back? Now, all the inanimate objects, they can't love, but all the animals, they follow instinct. I even looked up the word angel in the King James Bible. It appears 289 times. Never once does the word love appear in any of those verses to describe an angel's relationship with God. The angels, the word angel means messenger. They deliver God's messages. They smite God's enemies like in Egypt with the plagues. They are heavenly witnesses. Jesus says, I'll confess you before the angels. They um, uh, rejoice when a sinner converts. But the word love is not used in any verse to describe an angel's relationship with God. Angels are not made in the image of God, and Jesus did not die on the cross for angels. They are mighty beings. They are immensely powerful beings. They worship God. They glorify God. But they were made for a purpose. What purpose were you made for? We're not very smart, and we're not very powerful. You know, a king can have a castle with very strong soldiers and very intelligent staff, and then he can have children. (laughs) The word love is used all throughout the Bible to describe men and women's relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Psalms 91, because he said his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. Jesus rises from the dead and said, Peter, do you love me? We are beings created with the ability to love God. But for love to be loved, it must be voluntary. The moment he would force us to love him, he himself would know he's forcing us to love him, and he would know our response is not a love response, so he'll never force you to respond. And then there's a second thing. It gets a little brainy, but uh, God created light. And Einstein's theory of relativity um, that light travels at 186,000 miles per second. And if you could travel the speed of light, for you, time would stand still. God created light. He's faster than light. So for God, time effectively stands still. We'll never comprehend that. But there is a verse in the Bible that says, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Imagine experiencing one day as if it was a thousand years. In other words, we are moving in ultra slow motion compared to God. God exists in the ever-present now. I am that I am. When you're in God's presence, you cannot think about the past. You cannot think about the future. You can't even think. You just experience that you're in the presence of all love and all beauty and all power and all glory. And so for God to create our reality, he had to create a little space-time bubble where everything moves in slow motion compared to now. And so the speed of light is actually slow compared to now. In physics, they call it the speed of causality. It's the delay between cause and effect. And the fastest it can take place in a vacuum is the speed of light. 
And if you didn't have that, then everything would, there wouldn't be a delay and everything would happen right now and you'd be back in the presence of the Lord. And so God stretches things out. So we're moving in slow motion compared to him. I was thinking of a way of explaining it. Back to the GPS on your iPhone. You make a wrong turn, it recalculates. You make another wrong turn. What if the guy in the car next to you is making a wrong turn at the exact same time and his GPS is recalculating? What if everybody in the city, what if everybody in the world is making right turns and wrong turns and it's always recalculating? Well, God's outside of time. So we make our little free will decision. Sometimes we make good decisions, sometimes we make bad decisions, and he's outside of time. He can readjust every electron in the universe before time moves to the next nano frame so that his will is going to take place. So it's our limited free will, free will inside the context of his unlimited sovereign will, and it works because he's outside of time. So God created us, he creates us as free will beings with the ability to love him, and he's outside of time, so we make our free will decisions, but he's still in control. And there's another thing, he has to hide himself behind his creation. Because if he ever revealed himself to you in all of his universe-creating, omnipotent power, brighter than a trillion, trillion suns, your response, if you didn't melt, would be like the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, I fell at his feet, is dead. It would be instantaneous and in the presence of all power. So God has to hide himself. People say, if God's real, why doesn't he show himself? Because the moment he shows himself, your free will is gone. In the presence of all power, you're, you're going to know. You're not going to have any free will. It's just going to be. And the same hiding of himself that allows us the opportunity to have a free will necessitates that we have faith. It's so hard having faith. I wish I could see. Well, if you could see, you wouldn't need faith anymore, but you wouldn't have any free will anymore. I was trying to think of a way of explaining that. Imagine if a billionaire has a son who goes to college, he flies in on his private jet, drives up in his Lamborghini, he's got Rolex watch, gold rings, fancy clothes. He's going to have every girl on campus wanting to meet him. But if he lays all that aside and drives up in a clunker and he's got holes in his jeans, all the uppity girls are going to ignore him. But then there's a girl that likes to study with him in the library and they eat together in the cafeteria and they become friends. And she takes heat from the clique for hanging around this nobody guy. But she believes in him. They fall in love. They get engaged. And then one day he says, hey, I want to take you back to meet my dad. And they're like driving up to this castle mansion. And the girl's like, whoa, you didn't tell me about all this. He knows that she loves him for him, not because of all of his stuff. Jesus laid aside all his glory and was born in a manger. It says in Isaiah 53, there was nothing in his countenance that would make us want to desire him. If he would have come in all his glory, you'd have every political ladder climber. I'm your friend, I'm your friend, right? So he creates us as free will beings with the unique ability to love God back. He slows things down so we live in time and he's outside of time so he can still be in charge even though we have our little free will. He hides himself so that we can have an opportunity to use our free will but there's one last thing. He's just. And he can't help it. He's just. Which means he has to judge every sin. If God does not judge a sin, by default, his silence would be giving consent to the sin. 
And if God gives consent to one sin one time, he denies his just nature. He denies himself. He ungods himself. He's kicked out of heaven. And he cannot deny himself. And so he must judge every sin so he could never be loved back. Because even if he creates free will beings, hides himself so we have a free will, but if we step out of line one time, he has to judge us because if he doesn't judge our sin, he's giving consent to the sin. If he gives consent to sin, he's denying himself and he cannot deny himself so he could never be loved back until he came up with a plan. He actually had the plan before he created the first electron. And the plan was his own son would become a man And only as a man could God hang on a cross and die for our sins. Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, Amazing Love, how could it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So Abraham and Isaac are going to the top of Mount Moriah. And Isaac says, Father, we have the wood for the sacrifice. We have the coals for the sacrifice. But where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, Son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And it has a double meaning. Trusting God will have the ram up in the bush, but the other meaning is God will provide himself as the sacrifice. And that's what happened. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, in the plan of redemption that was hidden from ages. It was a hidden plan. It says, if the princes of this world had known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. The Apostle Paul calls it the mystery of the gospel. In this hidden plan, Jesus, the Son of God, becomes man becomes the Lamb of God, and he takes the judgment for all the sins we deserve upon himself. He takes the wrath of a just God upon himself. It says in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him. He was in the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means olive press. That's where the olives were crushed. Jesus was crushed. You know, I was reading the book of Revelation, and still trying to figure it out. I've read it probably a thousand times, listened to it on my phone a thousand times. But one thing seems clear. It's God that is pouring out the, the judgment in the book of Revelation. Lamb breaks the seal. Angel throws the censer. Angel blows the trumpet. Angel pours out the vials. Like, why is it? Well, that's the final judgment. God is a just God. He has to judge every sin he missed along the way so that you can't get 10,000 years into eternity. And say, God, there was a sin way back then and you didn't judge it and you were silent. Were you giving consent to the sin? Is there a party that's unjust we didn't know about? Uh Uh-uh. It says, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. And the angels cry out, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Nobody's going to question for the rest of eternity that God judged sin. But that's the final judgment. He won't do any more judging for the rest of eternity. But in that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. Jesus took the judgment for every sin that everybody would ever do upon himself on the cross. He experienced it as if it was a thousand years. That's why he was sweating drops of blood. You know, you say, Bill, God, God, you take, God is just. There's one Jesus and there's billions of us. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve eternal damnation. How can one pay for billions? Jesus is divine, and he experienced judgment in a dimension we will never comprehend. You know, uh, I have a degree in accounting, so I like things that balance. You take an eternal being, Jesus, who is innocent, 
suffering for a finite, limited period of time. It's equal to all of us finite, limited beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Let me say that again. An eternal being who is innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Infinity times finite equals finite times infinity. An unlimited being suffering for a limited period of time is equal to all of us limited beings suffering for an unlimited period of time. Jesus literally experienced the equivalent of eternal damnation in all of our places. He's the only one who could have done it. And out of love for the Father and out of love for you and me, he became the Lamb. He took the wrath of a just God. He was crushed. And then he rose from the dead to prove he was who he said he was. This way, you and I can approach this universe-creating, omnipotent God who's completely just and not have to worry about being judged. Because all the judgment we deserve went on him. And then he fills you with the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit uses you to share the love of God with the hurting world. So instead of you doing good works like Cain piling all of his grain on the altar, you do, instead of you doing good works, hoping to earn brownie points with God, you're already accepted by God through faith in the blood of the Lamb, and it's the Holy Spirit doing good works through you, reaching out to show the world he loves them, to feed the naked, to clothe the hungry, to rescue those unjustly sentenced to death, right? And there's nothing more exciting than letting the living God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, use you to share his love with the hurting world. So today, if you've not yet put all your faith in the lamb, this is your day. I'm gonna turn it back over to pastor. Did you learn anything? Now, was I right? Now, he's just getting started. What I love about him is that he can take any century and do the same thing for hours of stuff that's going on. I, and I first heard this when I started learning about our American history. But we're living in the time we're living in now. What is our responsibility? Preach Jesus. Compromise. It's not acceptable. You and I, loving God and loving truth is synonymous. That means that if you love him, you're going to stand out. You're going to be a little different than everybody else. If you are listening to, to, to William and you're in here right now and you go, I, I don't know Jesus, um, I'm, going to turn, I'm going to turn it over to Lisa in a minute. And um, I want you to take the chance right now to come up and be born again. Come to Jesus. If you're, if you're here and you're out of fellowship with God, now what I mean by that, you're a Christian, and, you're, and you've, you've compromised to come up and be born again. Hallelujah. Everybody just raise your hand up. Everyone raise your hand up. Wow. How can you not pray with, with an altar call? Say, Jesus, I thank you. You love me so much that you gave your only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should never die, but shall have everlasting life. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for shedding your blood for me. Thank you for redeeming me. I accept you as my Lord and my Savior, and I repent of anything that I've done that has displeased you even after maybe I was saved. I come back to you to love you with all my heart all my soul, 
all my mind and all my strength. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You are. We hope you enjoyed this message by Word of Life Church. We just wanted to let you know there's a lot more content on our website at wolapopka.com. From our YouTube channel, to our podcast, to our SoundCloud, and many more events. We also wanted to let you know that we love giving you these messages. And it helps us too that if you would love to give to the what we're doing, it helps keep all these messages free. You can just simply go to our website and click the big Give Now button. Or you can text 407-955-5345. And remember... Our pastor's vision is this, we grow Christians. So we thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.